welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Teddy. Oh, uh, hmm, sad. <laughs> I'm sad and utterly forgettable. <laughs> wow, okay, save it for now. All right. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sukwapmulu. And today's text, If I Stay, is set in Portland, Oregon, the traditional home of the Cowlitz, Grand Ronde, Clackamas, and Silexed peoples. Joe? Mm-hmm. There are aspects of this book and film I am going to be hard on today. Yes, I feel like you might not make everybody happy with this one. But I think it's important to note that I liked it enough that I actually read the sequel in time for today's (laughs) show. So like, I was curious and interested. I just wanted more different things. So anyway, I just want to frame that up for the If I Stay stands in the audience. Right, yeah. Mm. And uh, folks, I am not as critical on this pairing as Brenna is, so if she goes too far, I'm going to rein her in. (laughs) All right, so Joe, we read and watched If I Stay. So the book is by Gail Foreman, came out in 2009, and I want to jump right into the plot summary? Is that what we want to do? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so... um, Basically, the story centers on Mia. She's 17 years old, and um, it's a snow day in Portland, Oregon, and her mom and her dad and her little brother decide to go for a drive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're going to get outdoors. They're going to make use of their time together. Yeah. So school buses are canceled. You don't go for a drive. But anyway, obviously, they get into a horrible car accident. (laughs) Obviously. Obviously. (laughs) Um, And everybody is seriously injured i guess her mother is killed on impact um Mm -hmm. her father and her brother are both seriously injured and mia also is seriously injured but she awakens sort of like detached from her body and Mm -hmm. she discovers oh right no in the book both her parents are dead right on impact so she goes to find her own body she ends up following herself to the hospital and so begins this sort of journey about whether she should choose to stay or not, because a nurse tells her in the hospital that it's all up to her. If she mm-hmm. wants to stay, she'll stay. If she doesn't want to stay, she'll die. Which is, right. I gotta say, Joe, just a hell of a message. <laughs> well, like, it's a lot. I'll be honest, one of the things that I kind of appreciate about the book is that there are only a couple of references to God, and I'm not necessarily coming down on organized religion, but... In the crux of this narrative, I really expected it to be like, well, your faith is the thing that will carry you through. Or like, if God wants you to stay, you'll be the one to stay. And instead, it's very much like, no, you are your own agent. If you decide that you would like to stay on Earth, you will. And if you don't, then you will pass on. Yeah, okay. I I buy that for a dollar. I guess my thing is like, if you've loved someone who has died with traumatic injuries, I think that Mm -hmm. this message is really effed up. You know? Oh, okay. It's like they just didn't want to stay. <laughs> yeah, no, see, I I took it as like, this will only happen to certain people. Because I thought it was important that she never encounters anyone else in the hospital who's in the same position as her. So oh, I took it point. to be like, oh, there's only certain people who will be like really on 
the cusp. And it's like, if you're on that line where it could go either way, then you have the choice. That is unsupported by the text. It's just how I read it. Um, so while while Mia is having this kind of like floating around out of body experience, we go through mm-hmm. a series of flashbacks where we learn more about Mia's relationship to her parents and her brother. We also mm-hmm. go through a series of sort of vignettes in the hospital where family and friends and most notably her best friend Kim and her boyfriend Adam are trying to get access to her to see her. Right. And through those moments, we have these little vignettes where, for example, her grandfather sort of like lets her go. Her best friend tries to explain to her that she still has a family and Mm -hmm. Adam ultimately asks her to stay, uh, which in the end, spoiler alert, she decides to stay. Um, And so through this, we learn about Mia, that she is a cellist in a family of like rockers who has fallen Mm -hmm. in love with this indie punk boy. Yep. And that relationship has not always been smooth, nor has her friendship with Kim always been smooth, but that they have, you know, that she does have this group of people around her who really deeply care about her. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it's a very simple, straightforward story in that it's basically the relationship origin story told in flashback. I think one of my frustrations in the book that then gets exploded out in the film is All of the relationships are really subsumed under the romance. This is a romance first and foremost. And so I was sort of sometimes annoyed that we spent so much time even bothering to learn about these other characters when ultimately the romantic relationship is the only one that really has any hold over Mia. Uh, And Mm. I found that a little bit frustrating. But overall, it was an interesting book. I really liked the main character. I wanted to know more about her. Um, and as I said, I did read the sequel. So, like, it, it got me. But I think mm-hmm. that I wanted Mia's life to be a bit more rounded than okay. the narrative gave me. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm going to push back gently on you because I feel like you went into this saying, I want him to be more important. I want her relationship to her family to be more important. And I feel like the book is very clearly telegraphing that this is a romance and her relationship to Adam is kind of the most important thing. And particularly when you think of her age, right? She's 17, 18, about to go off to college. She's had one serious true love. So I read this as, of course, the boy is going to be the most important thing. But also, I feel like you're not giving enough credit to particularly the book and how it does paint this richer life for Mia. It's just that when push comes to shove, it is Adam who ends up tipping her over the edge to stay. Hmm. Like, hmm. honestly, I feel like I got a text from you very early on being like, mm, this boy. And I was like, Brenna, it is a romance. Like, if you want it to be something else, that is your problem and not the book's. Well, I guess I don't agree with you that the book telegraphs it as clearly as you're suggesting, because Mm. we do spend all this energy, which the film wisely sheds. The the film wisely (laughs) recognizes what the focus is. Right. But we do spend a lot of energy, for example, on like her relationship with Teddy, her brother, or we spend Mm -hmm. a lot of time on her grandfather and how important her grandfather is to her. And... It's not, there's no way to have this conversation that's saying like, I wish Mia died because that's not actually (laughs) a wish at all. But I do think it's fascinating that Gail Foreman makes the decision to have basically everyone else in Mia's life Mm -hmm. willing to let her go. 
and only Adam asking her to stay and that being the choice that has power over her. I find that a really interesting Hmm. construction. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I don't entirely agree because I do think that Kim never actually says you should go. It's that Mia interprets it as, don't worry, Kim, you'll be fine. You'll just have this sad senior year story. And then you can be the girl who recovered and like got over it and you'll marry and have kids. So in some ways... but how weird is it that that's her interpretation of that scene? Like, I also find that really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I feel like Foreman has all the tools there to let Mia's story be more, I don't know if nuanced or rich is even the word, but just to be more complicated than the way Mm -hmm. it gets made. But Mia is adamant that she will read everybody as saying goodbye to her, except Adam. I find it fascinating. I'm not sure that it's not totally age appropriate or very 17 or totally what we want in a romance. But I also think it's really, really interesting, particularly after I read the sequel. Okay, yeah, you've Mm -hmm. been teasing that things do change in the sequel because it is from Mm -hmm. Adam's perspective. I Mm -hmm. don't have the vantage of knowing what happens because I haven't read the sequel. To be honest, I didn't even know there was one until after you cued me to it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, all of Gail Foreman's books have identical sounding titles and identical looking cover art. So (laughs) I was just like, oh, I assume that it was just one of the other books she's written that has a very (laughs) generic title. No, so there's the sequel Where She Went, which came out in 2011, um, which is before the film comes out, but after the film goes in production, which I think is interesting, Mm. too. Um, And it is from What's-His-Face's perspective. Adam. Adam? It is from Adam's perspective. (laughs) And uh, it's three years in the future. He has hit it big as an indie rock god. Right. Based on this whole album about heartbreak. And she has fast-tracked her way through Juilliard and will graduate at the end of her third year. And they are not together anymore. Okay. And it, uh, it ends... For the romance fans in the audience, I'm not a horrible person. It ends with a happily ever after, I promise, blah, blah. But what's very interesting is before they can get to the happily ever after, what we discover is that Mia fundamentally resents Adam for making her stay. Mm. And weird. Adam has this realization that she could hear everything he said to her in the hospital, which he has never Mm -hmm. known before. So in that scene in the hospital, he tells her that if he has to let her go and never see her again, he will accept that as long as she lives. And that is effectively what happens in the sequel, except that he doesn't accept it. He becomes self-destructive and, Mm. like, obsessed with her and, like, follows her around New York and there's this whole thing. And so it's this idea of, like, the things that you say you want and the things that you say you will do or sacrifice for someone else, like, Mm -hmm. is that really something you can promise? Is that really something you can do right or you say it in the moment but you realize you can't actually follow through with it when push comes to shove because real life isn't like that yeah exactly and it's it's very complicated and like emotionally difficult and yeah they get together in the Mm. end because it's romance um i'm pretty sure gail foreman books all end the same way oh of course yeah (laughs) but that is really fascinating because i wonder if part of why the first book didn't work for you is because the second book is more complicated, whereas this first book is actually very simple and straightforward. Yeah, possibly. I think I definitely wanted something more from it. And when I did get to the sequel, I found it more compelling. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think I just like, 
I don't know. I just like messier stories than this now. And okay. maybe okay. it's just because, you know, you and I have talked a lot about like, what happens when we've read all the books? You know, like, mm-hmm. are we getting mm-hmm. to a point where we've read too many of the same kind of story? Right. And I, I feel that way more strongly about the simple romances than I do about any of the others. Okay. I mean, I think that's incredibly fair. Of course, I, you know, sometimes I'll think of, oh, what if people started the podcast on this particular <laughs> episode? And they're like, bad choice. You made a bad move. <laughs> well, we have gotten a criticism from somebody, uh, like one of our Apple reviews literally says, oh, I started this podcast. And it sounds like they hate <laughs> all the books and the movies that they review. And it's like, well, no, it's just in certain ways, we have. We've covered so many of them. We're very familiar with these tropes. And I'm not apologizing for us because some of these things clearly work for us. Others don't. And in some cases, I do think we've become a little jaded. But it's also because we've come to appreciate the people who take narrative and storytelling risks. Whereas, you know, If I Stay, I think it's a perfectly serviceable book, but it's also not, it's not going to shake you to your foundations by doing something radically different. No, that's very true. There's, as I said off the top, like, there's nothing wrong with this book. I wanted enough out of it that I sat down to read the sequel. Mm -hmm. I think I just, you know, Mia is such an interesting and driven character in so many ways. She has this thing that she wants. And Mm -hmm. the relationship isn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, right? Like, something we should probably talk about is, like, Adam really struggles with the idea of her pursuing success on her own separate from him like he has a hard time with that idea and so I think part of it is that the the book sets you up to want multiple kinds of success for Mia but it's Mm -hmm. not it's not certain that in staying with Adam she will be able to have that and right so I think that complicates the sort of happily ever after ending here as well Mm mm-hmm well, it was interesting because not knowing what the outcome of the sequel was, the book ends almost on a bit of a cliffhanger. Like it literally ends the moment that she decides to stay and she opens her eyes and Adam mm-hmm. says, Mia, the book is over. So you don't actually know what happens in the relationship. And in a way, I do like the open endedness of that because it allows you to project whether or not they will stay together or mm-hmm. You know, as we eventually find out, they go their separate ways and then they end up reuniting later on. But what fascinated me specifically about this relationship, because I do want to talk about Mia's relationship to her family, because that was one of the big parts I enjoy about the book. Mm -hmm. But thinking just about the romance, I was tantalized by the impression that this book doesn't give you the easy answer that they will obviously stay together or that it will work out for them because they're both so driven. They do feel like they have to diverge from each other in order Mm -hmm. to achieve individual success. That's interesting that you read the ending as more ambiguous and you're right too. Like you're, you're absolutely right too. I think, yeah, that's interesting because you're, they shouldn't stay together. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so the very clear. She want. has to go to Juilliard and yeah. he will continue to like his meteoric rise with the band. But like those are happening in two completely different places. And Adam is very clear that like long distance relationships are something that he would not be good at. Like in a way, Adam is a really fascinating character because he's a good guy, but he also has a bunch of really negative verging on toxic traits. Mm-hmm. But Foreman teases those without saying no adam's actually a really bad guy because i don't think Mm -hmm. you could interpret him that way but it's very clear that he's not 
the best boyfriend. Yeah, I mean, he's very much not the best boyfriend. I think the film does that. It, it leans into it more strongly. I was going to say, it's maybe a bit more heavy-handed about that. Yeah. Um, I think that he is just he is just 18, right? Like, mm-hmm, I don't think right. he's a bad yes. guy. I think he's just 18. And I think, you know, there's a part in the book and the film where Mia's mom says, you know, it's it's hard to fall in love at 17. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that what you feel for him isn't real, but this is a really hard age to to commit to another person because you yes. have other things you want to do. And I think we want so badly to see Mia go to Juilliard and succeed. Mm-hmm. And we don't, I don't know, I worry about her, right, at the end of the book, because it's like all the things that were pushing her in the direction of Juilliard, with the exception are of gone. her grandmother, really, are gone. And mm-hmm. all the things that were, were anchoring her to Portland are still there, right? And yes. so you you kind of, maybe that's why I read it as more clear than mm. it actually is expressed in the text. Okay. I can see that point as well. Yeah. And I feel like one of the things that I allied over with this ending is the the kind of implications of what it will mean for her. Because there's very much a push and pull throughout the book about, you know, people worrying about what it means for her if she does come through because yeah, suddenly she doesn't have parents and she doesn't have a sibling. And I think that's why the book tries to make it so evident that she still has a family. We get that monologue from Kim. It's like, we know that you've lost every important person, but you do still have me. You have Adam, you have your grandparents, you have this whole extended family. And I think that's why I wanted to push back on you about feeling like this is so heavily Adam's story. I don't disagree that it's Adam who ends up kind of making the decision or pushing her over that edge. But I really do feel like the book took a lot of time, like it uses up a lot of pages to talk about, here are all the people in your life. And even though we don't know them all excessively well, it's very clear that Mia has a lot more people in her corner. She just happens to always prioritize adam well that's that i think i totally agree with you and i that annoys me (laughs) (laughs) i agree with you that we spend a lot of time getting to know like the road trip with her grandfather i think is a particularly lovely part of the book yeah he takes her to her juilliard audition yeah and you know the support that her grandmother puts in her going to juilliard and you know there are a lot of really nice beats in the book around these other people even like Mm -hmm. Mia reminisces about um, being kind of raised by her parents' community of, like, rock and roll people because her brother is so much younger than her. She was an only child for a long time, and her parents were the only ones in their set who had a kid. So it was like, Mm -hmm. you just got passed around a lot. And and those people are all really important, too. Like, I love all of those stories, and I think that's Mm -hmm. why, as I say it can totally be age appropriate and still really irritate me that Adam gets bumped to the head of the line of all of these people when Adam Mm -hmm. is the one who is least able to prioritize Mia herself, right? You know, they have all those arguments and all those debates about, (laughs) and he like can't even ask her, you know, if her audition goes well because he doesn't really want to know. And it's like, ma, you have all these other great people. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel that that's the very adult response to this. Like, I think if we were teenagers and reading this, we would be in love with the idea of me and Adam in the same way that Kim and some of the other people at school are. But as adults, we look at this and say, 
you have so much richness in your life with all of these hard rockers who just sound absolutely fantastic. Like, I think that's one of the things that really carries me through the book is just how vibrant these other characters are. And I appreciate that you want to spend more time with them or you want Mia to acknowledge the value of those relationships. But I was just so happy to get the insight into them. Like, I think they're really fun and entertaining. And honestly, her life kind of sounds incredible. (laughs) You know, bar none, the relationship issues that she occasionally has to deal with with Adam. Well, and that's one of the things, right, is that Adam has kind of adopted her family because her family is so much closer Mm -hmm. and Kim's family leans on Mia's family as well, right? There's this sense that like Denny and Kat as these two, like, totally in over their head, young parents have ended up creating a house full of love and compassion Mm -hmm. that people feel really comfortable at. And, you know, they have these big meals where they just feed whoever comes by. And like, there is a real sense of love and affection. And I, I do, I love that. And I think that Gail Foreman makes a good choice in setting that up because Obviously, her loss is so significant, and it also means Mm -hmm. that the loss to everyone else is so significant. One of the things that happens in the sequel is Adam gets angry at Mia because she refuses to acknowledge that he also lost her parents, and he also lost Teddy. Like, they were hugely important in his life, and she's never been able to acknowledge, like, his loss and his grief. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, okay. she goes she goes hard in the sequel, I'm telling you. Huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I wonder if by virtue of laying all of this groundwork, even if it isn't always entirely successful for you, that emboldens the sequel because you've already created all of these relationships and you fell in love with these characters. Oh, totally. There's absolutely no character building necessary in the sequel because the only two characters who exist are really... Mia and Adam. There's a right. floozy girlfriend of oh. Adam's that he's with for the tabloids, basically. And then there's some like older mentor of Mia's who is sounds a little bit exploitative, but they're never actually mm-hmm. people. They're only ever sort of right. referenced. The only people we spend any time with are these two. And so yeah, you've got you've done all the world building and you can just get into like the the actual like messy after stuff, which this mm-hmm. book obviously doesn't have to deal with because it's entirely wrapped up in the romance of Mia's life pre-accident. Well, I will say one of the things that I appreciated, and especially just coming off of Derby Girl slash Whip It, is that we don't have to deal with the rocker on the road having a floozy and that being a source of dramatic conflict. Like, Adam isn't a bad dude in that way. It's really just, oh, you're becoming super successful and I am on the verge of becoming super successful in my own right. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's much more interesting conflict, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I mean, let's give uh, Gail Foreman some credit there, because obviously, it's much easier to try to generate that false conflict with, oh, maybe you're sleeping with someone else. Oh, I have in- insecurities about our relationship. Yeah, totally. No, totally. Uh, well, why don't we switch over to the film and we can talk about how the movie does some of this stuff. Hmm. What's that? You'll be auditioning for Juilliard. That's the ceiling. I figured, you know, if you look at it every night, it won't seem so scary when you get there. I told you he was into you. No, he isn't him. You know how when you meet someone and they just 
already are the person they're meant to be. That was Adam. Nobody outside Portland had ever heard of his band, but he already was somebody. Me, not so much. She shouldn't be scared to hang out with those guys. They're us. Exactly. Adam's here. Kids, be careful out there. Here it gets pretty wild. It's symphony. Why do I have this feeling you're about to mess up my entire life? You can't hide in that rehearsal room forever. It's too late. I see you. Isn't it amazing how life is one thing and then in an instant it becomes something else? Like here I am, Mia, the girl who thinks about the cello and Adam and just like that. Live if you die, it's all up to you. So whatever fight you got in you, you gotta pull it out now. Say something, I'm giving up on you. Kids waking up an orphan. If she wakes up. Say something, I'm giving up on you. What am I supposed to do? Sometimes you make choices in life, and sometimes choices make you. The you you are now is the same you I was in love with yesterday, the same you I'll be in love with tomorrow. You still have a family, Mia. I can't lose her. Say something on you. Life is this big fat, gigantic, stinking mess. That's the beauty of it, too. I'm still here, and I'm crazy in love with you. Please stay. All right. So the movie comes out in 2014 and it is directed by RJ Cutler. And that name doesn't mean much to you, Brenna, but interestingly no. enough, he is the director of the Billie Eilish documentary that Jenny Nolf and I covered when you oh. were on vacation last year. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. And speaking of Derby Girl slash Whip It, the screenplay is by Shauna Cross. Shauna Cross. There we go. We didn't plan to do these back-to-back, folks, we promise. Uh, Speaking of recent people we have talked about on the podcast, we have Chloe Grace Moritz as Mia. Of course, we discussed her when we were talking about Let Me In, the American remake of Let the Right One In. We have uh, UK actor Jamie Blackley as Adam... My personal favorite, Marie Enos as Kat and mm. Joshua Leonard as Denny. Hall of Fame. I sure. just want to say, like, MVP parents <laughs> for the ages. Like, <laughs> I think it's still the parents from EZA, Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci, and then maybe this pairing because Agreed. just amazing. So much fun. Love them. And then we have Stacy Keach as her grandfather. We have Aisha Hines in a kind of nothing thankless role as Nurse Ramirez. I really enjoy Aisha Hines. She often shows up in genre fair. And actually, uh, you wouldn't know this, but the dad, Denny, Joshua Leonard, he's one of the three actors from the Blair Witch Project. Oh, really? Yeah, it's super weird. Super weird. And the final person of note is Liana Liberato as Kim. Yeah, which is an interesting choice to make in the film because one of the sort of notable character points, I guess, about Kim is that she's mm-hmm. the only Jewish kid in their school. Um, and part of her desire to go away and to leave the town is to like f- connect with 
other Jewish kids and develop a Jewish identity that's separate from what she's sort of cultivated in this suburb of Portland. Mm -hmm. And that is a big part of her character. And it's a big part of kind of like an outsider status that draws her and Mia together. Uh, All of that is absent from the film version, unfortunately. Yeah. So I think as we teased off the top, this film is fine. Like, uh, one of the things (laughs) we talked about off air is that this is very much a model adaptation where we have taken everything that is extra about the book, really distilled it down to the central thing, which in this case is the romance between Mia and Adam. And then there's brief glimpses of other things but for the most part it's like any subplots any interesting edges on the story have been sanded off and it's very very straightforward and simple i find it frustrating in the film because anything that bothered me about the lack of development of the relationships that mia has outside of adam Mm -hmm. are like tenfold in the film to the point where I was joking with Joe like by the time Teddy dies in the film Mm -hmm. I don't remember what he looks like because we spend so little time and it's it's unfortunate for an actor as strong as Chloe Grace Moretz because it means she's often acting against nothing like when she has her huge breakdown over Teddy's death Mm-hmm. I wanted to feel a lot more for her than I actually yeah. did in that moment. You know? Yeah. Oh, I I agree completely. I struggled a lot with this because I think she is a very strong actress. Like, I've seen her in a bunch of stuff. She's often very reliable, kind of rock solid as an anchor or a lead. And I actually feel like she's really badly miscast in this movie because... I don't know if it's just that she doesn't have enough to work with or she doesn't have anyone to bounce off of, but I find her interpretation of Mia to be not just sad and not just boring, but very flat. Like emotionally, Mm. I find it very difficult to engage or invest in her as a character. Yeah, I actually really strongly agree with you. And I feel that in the scenes where she's against Leanna Liberato as Kim, because Sometimes it honestly feels like Kim is feeling more feelings about Mia's life than Mia yeah. is at certain times. Kim and is so invested in her life. <laughs> there's a critical distance that makes sense in the out-of-body stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I get that, because you're like, am I here or am I there? Who can see me? Like, what is happening? Okay. But right. in the flashbacks, that shouldn't be happening. And yet that same right. emotional affect seems to carry through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like she seems almost bored with her life. And even like, in the book, it's so clear that Mia is absolutely driven by music, like she can't not play the cello. It's Mm -hmm. what she has to do. (laughs) And the problem with these kinds of performances in the film is that you're either asking for the actor to learn rudimentary skills and be convincing And, you know, we saw this with Coda, where Mm -hmm. uh, that actress took nine months to learn American Sign Language, so she's very adept at it. It's convincing on screen. Here, what we get is Chloe Grace Moretz kind of fumbling around in, like, medium and long shots, and then clearly someone who actually knows what they're doing, doing it in close-ups. And 
it's a lot to ask like oh chloe grace Moretz should have gone off and learned how to play the cello but like even when she's not i don't get the sense that she's excited by the music like what's that to say it feels like she's sleepwalking through this performance so there's some really weird cgi that happens in the juilliard audition scene and Mm -hmm. i was so thrown by it that i i had to google it to find out like there's something about the Juilliard audition scene that just looks so weird. It doesn't work. Like, yeah. Her head is like bobbing from side to side. Like it looks disconnected from her body. Anyway, that's because mm-hmm. it is. They've CGI'd yeah. Chloe Grace Moritz's face, face yeah. onto a professional cellist. And it's like, I get that as a solution to the problem of this young woman not being a cellist. Mm-hmm. But I found it really uncanny valley. Like I would much rather have just had like a lot of long shots and you know maybe some like mm-hmm. shots from the back and then just talk about the cello a lot like that would have been fine for me for <laughs> sure creepy for sure. weird head thing was i found unsettling particularly in a film that like i don't know i mean you couldn't call it realist but like it's not doing anything like that you know and then you have this bobbing head thing happening well you've actually hit the nail on the head you said it's not particularly realistic because obviously we're following this teenage girl in purgatory in the hospital. But at the same time, this is a film that visually is very grounded, like mm-hmm. to the point where I think I even texted you and said, I wish that it was more clear visually when we were transitioning between flashbacks and present day, because the film can't even be bothered to tell you what is going on like it's not as though it's difficult to figure out because you're like oh there's her mom her mom's dead in the present so clearly we're in a flashback (laughs) but there is no transition like the film doesn't have a very keen visual style so something like bad cgi in the juilliard audition is going to stand out all the more yeah yeah i agree and i found I think what I wanted is a bit of otherworldliness to Mm -hmm. the scenes where she is out of body. And instead, it was just like, there is this person running around this hospital with no shoes on. Like, could somebody Mm -hmm. please see to her? Um, (laughs) And the film, I mean, it's not like the film isn't careful. Like, nobody looks at her. Like, if the film is careful to make sure that, you know, it is happening in the world, Mm -hmm. etc. But it's still, there's something really strange about the visual choices that are made here that don't make any distinction and yet it feels like we're supposed to be able to make a distinction i don't i'm not phrasing it very well but it's weird yeah (laughs) and i think you're actually being more clear than you realize so i've covered ghost on another podcast recently and i was really thinking about how that film does a good job of not just establishing what the rules are of this kind of liminal space that the main character finds themselves in like patrick swayze he's able to walk on the ground but he can't go through doors so he has to like slip in with other people his hand goes through objects if he tries to touch them and so on and that creates a sense of oh he's there but he also can't affect anything there's a scene here in if i stay where The family members rush in and they're at the kind of reception desk and they're like, we're here to see Mia. We need to see, we need to see her. And Mia, Chloe Grace Moretz is right there and she tries to put her hand on somebody else's. And I was like, is it going to go through? Is that person going to like notice that there's a touch? And there's literally no response. But it also then just looks like Chloe Grace Moretz is just there. 
And you're like, okay, you needed to do something, like even make her a little translucent or Mm -hmm. something. Like visually, this film is so boring. (laughs) And it's really shocking because I'm I'm almost sad that you haven't seen the Billie Eilish documentary because it's a shot a bit more like a music video because it is a music documentary. So it has like faster paced editing and that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. But it has a flow and a rhythm and almost like a joy to the proceedings. Like there's an energy to it. Oh, this doesn't have any of those things. <laughs> there's no energy here. It feels like no. the movie is actually mirroring Mia's malaise, but also that's not particularly interesting to watch for like an hour and 40 minutes. No, I agree completely. It's, um, yeah, it is. It's flat. And I found similarly like not a ton of chemistry between mia and adam in the film and you know that's not actually forgivable if you were going to strip away all the rest of the relationships and make the romance the centerpiece the chemistry Mm -hmm. actually really does have to be there unfortunately i know that you didn't love jamie blackley i've seen him in a bunch of television and i actually find him fairly watchable i think he's okay here but you're completely right he and grace moritz don't have anything so it's really hard (laughs) to believe that these two are questioning all of their life decisions to put the relationship on the the front burner because you're like (laughs) do you even like each other there's one the one scene where they're having that fight out at the van and he's like i have to go away oh gosh oh that scene is so terrible yeah (laughs) it is it's really bad because it's like okay have you guys met before like are you you invested in each other in any way shape or form like what is happening here and it escalates so quickly she's like Mm -hmm. you don't like this stuff and he's like well you didn't tell me you applied to juilliard so i'm getting on the road and we're leaving tonight and she's like it's my birthday. <laughs> You're just like, what is happening right now? There was no setup for this. It doesn't feel earned at all. No, no. And then we have to sit through the sad birthday dinner where you're just like, look at all these other people who love you. Could you just mm-hmm. not for five seconds? Yeah. Uh, but I will say all of all of the family scenes, like the interactions where they're talking about the snow day and the parents banter and just acting young but obviously recognizing that they're old and they've aged out like they're they recognize that they are aged rockers and they kind of know that it's a little bit sad but they don't care because they're still cool (laughs) i just i love these parents so freaking much brenna yeah i really like them too and i think they give a lot to the part i think they warm up the film tremendously i think without them Mm -hmm. it would feel very flat indeed um because they bring a lot of dynamism and light to the scenes that they're in it makes you want more Mm -hmm. of them and it makes you sad that they're dead and you're not going to get any more of them (laughs) (laughs) so much so yeah my my favorite scene of the entire movie is probably when they talk about mia's best day where everybody shows up and brings food and they just kind of have a big cookout and then they end up singing around the campfire as she joins them with the cello Mm -hmm. and I thought it was the only moment in the film where the action fully comes alive. Like, I was very much sucked in and enjoying this moment. And then to cut back to the hospital afterwards was, oh, okay, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. I uh, I definitely think the book is stronger and more interesting. And everything that bugged mm-hmm. me about the book is really just what I wanted the book to do more of. Whereas right. everything that bugged me about the film was sort of, I don't know, they took so many safe beats in the film yeah. to make it a straightforward romance that they they stripped out anything 
that could be really interesting. And they Mm -hmm. didn't give us enough of what you want from the visuals in an adaptation like this, which is like, well, how does this work? (laughs) Right? Yeah. The film feels like a missed opportunity. I can see if folks felt like the chemistry was okay between these two, the film would actually be very successful. I just didn't find that it was there. And as a result, the film doesn't give me enough of the family. It doesn't have enough of that energy. And yeah, just that really flat visual tone. It just, it's too somber, which I appreciate is the subject matter, but it just, I didn't feel emotional. Like I had a couple of people message me and be like, oh, you know, I get, I get so teary eyed or I'm like really, I'm really invested in the outcome. And I just unfortunately don't feel that way at all. No, I definitely had teary moments in the book, but I did not have any for the film. Yeah. Mm -mm. Uh, Okay, so shall we do some YA bingo with this? Yeah, let's do it. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, well, Joe, Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you there's a dead family in this book. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) And we definitely have a filmed in the territory now known as Canada. We didn't talk about Mm -hmm. this, but oh my god, this Portland is so Vancouver. Oh my gosh, so Vancouver. Yeah, it's aggressively Vancouver. Um, And it's also aggressively Coquitlam. A lot of the scenes were clearly shot in Coquitlam. Um, (laughs) CGI for the terrible, terrible Juilliard audition scene. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely some borrowed time and some magic supernatural. Absolutely, yes. Although the rules are never clear enough to know how much time is borrowed. Could she just float around like this forever? Who knows? <laughs> Who can tell? Um, we definitely have a, a number of perfect dates, certainly in the book, but I think the film has some lovely moments between the two of them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, musicality, I guess. <laughs> I actually think much stronger in the book than in the film. I don't think the film plays to the strengths of it being about two musicians nearly mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, although I will say I appreciated the musical sequences where we see Adam play because uh, that is a convincing performance and I kind of like the music. Yeah, I agree. The Halloween scene was particularly good. Yeah. I will say good friendships because I think particularly in the book between him and Mia, like they are really good friends. They are and it's a lovely friendship and it's not an unchallenged one, I guess. It's mm-hmm. not a straightforward friendship, but they work through their troubles in really age-appropriate ways that I found very charming. Right, yeah. Now, can we say road trip if it ends in a horrible car wreck? <laughs> Part of a road trip. Start of a road trip. Don't, ladies and gentlemen, go on a road trip if the roads are closed because the buses are cancelled. Mm-hmm. God! Learn to live in snow, people. <laughs> yeah, this very much felt like, wait, haven't you lived in Portland? Shouldn't you know better? Yeah, feel, felt like it. Felt like a bad decision. <laughs> Although I did think, here's something interesting that the book does do. Sorry, just to circle back. Um, mm-hmm. I found it interesting that the book doesn't try to blame the other driver. Like, right. this was an accident accident. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because there's no sort of, I'm going to live so I can see that driver held accountable. You know right. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there would there would have been some easy emotional stakes there that Foreman right. doesn't go for. And I think it's a braver choice. This is true. Yeah. And I, I appreciated that it wasn't something like, oh, he was drunk driving or yeah. he fell asleep at the wheel. It's like, it doesn't matter what happened. Yeah. It was an accident. And that's not the focus. 
Exactly. Yeah, no, I really appreciated that. Okay. Um, oh, well, there's a lot of montages. There's a lot of montages. Yeah, there are a lot of montages. For sure. <laughs> Probably too many montages. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is good enough for a line. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> uh, before we close this up and move on to what we're going to be talking about next week, I'm curious, Brenna, if you can remember all the way back to nearly the beginning of the podcast, we did cover another supernatural, I died in a car accident, but I get to sort of decide if I'm going to stick around. Would you say that you like this one better than Before I Fall? Yes. Yeah. So at, at least this one also has that in its defense, right? It's true. And you know, my, my I mean, all my problems with Before I Fall were that that was just, just a, that was not just an issue of an unlikable narrator. It was like, it's that unpleasant person to have to spend so much time with. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, Mia has an awful lot of redeeming qualities. All of her failings are exclusively those of just being young and silly. Um, right. So yeah, no, 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 I definitely preferred this to whatever that other one was called. They all have <laughs> the same title. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very similar. (laughs) Preposition pronoun verb. (laughs) Indeed. Okay. Okay, so that will wrap up If I Stay. And of course, uh, we have a book club that we need to get to. So folks, if you are hearing this, you have only two more days to submit your responses to Go Ask Alice, which uh, we're going to be talking about next week for Band Book Club. Pretty excited about this one because it's going to be weird and I'm looking forward <laughs> to the weirdness. Everybody. Mm-hmm. So, Brenna, if people do want to try to sneak in a last minute comment about Go Ask Alice, how would they do so? Well, you can find us on the Twitters at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. If you've got something longer, like we hope your book club mail is, you can send it to HKHSPod at gmail.com. If you want to talk to us individually, Joe, where do they find you on the Twitters? I can be reached at B still my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And uh, yeah, Joe, what's our next full length book after book club? Oh boy. Okay, so Brenna, we're gonna stick with some kind of uncomfortable sort of sad territory, but also thinking back to the beginning of the pod, we have a returning champion. So we are going to be reading Wonder, which is a book from 2012, and then we're going to watch the movie of the same name, which was directed by... The writer of our very first episode, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and that, the movie Wonder, is from 2018. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there to read and think about Wonder, so mm, it'll be an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort mm-hmm. of spoiler alert, folks, we're not big fans of this. Not huge fans, no. <laughs> and we'll talk about why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in two weeks. Sounds good. All right, folks. So you know what you're reading, you know what you're watching. Until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Uh, And I guess the final sort of notable person is uh, Liana Liber. 
And the final notable person is Liana Liber... Lib... Liberato. Liberato, I think. Um, I don't know, um, Joe. Oh, I guess Magic Supernatural. I, oh, yeah. I've already said that one. You did? I wasn't mm-hmm. listening. 